Good morning, Grace Point Church. I'm supposed to announce that children are now going to Children's Church. John's wife and daughter are going to Children's Church. It's always amazing that when I teach, which is not too often, that my wife is always out of the room at Children's Church, so she doesn't have to hear me, which is really good because uh, today we're going to tap into a passage speaking about uh, not only the intimacy with God, but intimacy with each other, and my wife knows I'm just the last person that should be teaching on intimacy. I realized that uh, when we were doing the Colossians series, the intimacy word kept popping up, and um, I don't know why Gunnar gives me those passages. Um, I, I'm a cop, not a preacher, and I really should get like the judgment and the fire and brimstone passages, but you give me the intimacy passages. Um, if you're new to Grace Point, uh, welcome. Um, I'm John Johnson. That's the least important thing you have to know. Um, I'm not the pastor here. Our pastor is on vacation, and um, uh, go figure that when our pastor's on vacation on Sunday, what does he do? He goes to church. So <laughs> welcome, pastor. It's good to have you. Um, announcements. There's one announcement I'd like to draw your attention to. Just It's in your bulletin, but um, there is a men's group uh, that is formed. I, I, I think I should go to this. It's called December 18th, Saturday. It's Ladies and Lattes. And so, man, if you like ladies and if you like lattes, it seems that you'd want to go to that. Um, it's, I haven't been. It looks like I, I, we should save the date and let uh, the ladies uh, service lattes. And I, I love it. Thank you. Is it, Rachel, is it at your house or where's it going to be? Is that uh, okay? Well, great. Um, any qu- do I have it right? Did I do it? So, men are not invited. What will the girls talk about without men there? <laughs> so, uh, ladies and lattes, December 18th. I, and I do love that this is a church that has um, a lot of connection, and uh, you people actually like each other, and that's one of the things that keeps me here. Um, the other thing is, of course, the price of gas, and I can't travel far. Um, <laughs> of course, I do drive a county car, so you pay for my gas, but I want to be responsible. Okay. Um, that's really what I have. Uh, we're in kind of a long passage today. I really debated. Gunnar likes to come up and read the passage. Uh, this one's 21 verses. Uh, I'm not going to expound all 21 verses, but we are going to read them because it is God's Word. And if, if, if the lights go out in a few minutes and the bombs start to fall, at least we'd have read God's Word. And that's like the best thing you could do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Word of God. We thank you that you wrote us a book and that you gave us this love letter to help guide us, that we might know you and know our purpose and know what you'd have us do. So, Father, we want to honor you by reading your book today, and uh, we want you to communicate it as you will. Uh, Let our ears hear the way they should, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 4 and read through the end. Uh, This is the account or the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man which he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river wandered 
a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon, say it as you will. It's, it winds through the entire lands of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold in that land is good, and there's aromatic resin and onyx stones, and they're there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, and it runs east uh, on the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each of the living creatures, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of man, and he, he brought her to the man. And, and the man said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of me. And for this cause, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Heavenly Father, for your word we do thank you, and we pray that as you have brought people here through a curriculum this week, a curriculum to grow each of us for our good and towards Christ's likeness and your glory, we pray that you would use this passage in the specific circumstances where you have placed each of us. One meaning, many applications, and you know intimately how this applies to each one of us. So Father, we trust you to open our ears to the things we should say, to close our ears to things that they shouldn't hear. Guard my mouth and my tongue to give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so John Johnson, I, I am a cop, I'm not a preacher. Uh, I tell you, I come up here with fear. And not, I'm not afraid of speaking in public, I kind of like it actually, but um, I, I'm in fear uh, of the Lord, a healthy fear, a good thing. This is the Word of God. We want to handle it rightly. And not only that, but this passage, really all the passages in Genesis, open up a quagmire of uh, social issues uh, relevant today, and I'll probably offend somebody. And if you are offended, just know it's not me, it's God. And uh, <laughs> and know that I am just as offended as well. There's things in these passages that affect me dearly and personally, and I just have to deal with it because this is from God. As we continue in Genesis 2, and a couple of weeks ago, uh, Gunnar started us in Genesis 1, uh, we're in one of the very few passages in the Bible where we're not yet preaching about sin. There's no problems yet in creation. It's a beautiful time. You only get two chapters of it. Sin has affected mankind, and what a joy to get a glimpse of God's original dealing with we, his people, his intended audience, the way he wanted it. Well, a quick review thus far. Do I have a slide in there somewhere? Is it up? It's not my... Oh, I see you. Went and, I don't know what you did. Okay, good. Whatever that is, that's my content. Okay. Um, as we continue, in, uh, let's see. Um, now, from Genesis 1, 
let me ask you, if you're listening to Gunner a couple weeks ago, from Genesis 1, who is the source of all things? God. Okay, Gunner, you accomplished your goal. Excellent. And remember, God, is that important? Is it an important truth? Absolutely. It's very important and relevant for today. The truths presented in Genesis have consequences attached. And when we deviate from these truths, we suffer through the consequences. Uh, For instance, in 1859, Charles Darwin published a book which argued that natural selection or survival of the fittest was the great determinator of all things in nature. And this was gobbled up by hordes of people who were looking at that time for a reason to squeeze God out of the equation of life and society. They were waiting for this book. They were glad for it. And the generation of children raised under those ideas then raised their children under those ideas with the result that two generations later, we see the atrocities committed by two nations, Japan and Germany, who each believed that they, in fact, were the super race. They were the fittest. And the result, of course, was World War II. They thought that they could, uh, it was fine for them to take a moral carte blanche against all other societies for the advancement of their own super society. Uh, That false belief was the foundation of World War II. Check it out. The truths presented in Genesis have consequences attached as well. And when we deviate, we will suffer from them. It's true in the spiritual and also the theological realm. Genesis introduces, I believe, every major doctrine found throughout the rest of the Bible. The foundations of all truth is in Genesis. Genesis lays a foundation for truths which we hold dear. And if we waffle on a foundation of a truth, as that theological truth develops in our study of the Scripture, we'll be on shaky ground because the foundation is all askew. So really, Genesis is a, is a part of a healthy spiritual diet, and still, the trend over the last 50 years, and probably longer than that, has been to diminish the factual, historical nature of the book of Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters. I would say that many, if not most, of the public voices would tell you that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are allegory at best, and fictional at worst, legend. And we wonder why our churches have reached a state of crisis over the last two or three generations. They don't know what to believe. And if you spend time with people, especially with college students, you're going to find that this society who has declared freedom from all these biblical ideas is still asking the question, who am I? Why do I exist? Where do I come from? What's my purpose? What we read in Genesis is solid truth, and it's foundational to our understanding of who God is, where we come from, and why we are here. Who God is, where we come from, and why we are here. The questions men have been asking since the beginning. Now, Gunnar led us through the uh, days of creation all the way through God's day of rest in the early chapters, uh, early verses of Genesis 2. And in today's passage, God expounds further about, the di- about day 6. He goes back to day 6, the creation of man. And out of all of God's creation, he's going to showcase for us more specifics about the creation of people 
above all other creation. Now, I think the creation of the stars and the light, that would be more interesting, how the light came before the, that is really cool stuff. But God says, no, 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 let me showcase you, you people. You're what I want to talk about. God's going to zero in on the sixth day, if you will. Now, where Genesis 1 gave us a general overview of the creation account, this next section is told in a more intimate manner, a more personal manner. And I believe God does this because he's moving into a more intimate direction of the God-to-man relationship. What does the book say about how God connects with you? That's important. That's a takeaway. We want to know these things. You were created for intimacy with God. You were created for intimacy with God. That is your purpose. And you will never be satisfied until you find intimacy with God. Nothing else will satisfy. Now, note that what follows in Genesis 2 is really told in story format. Story doesn't mean it's not true, but it's, it's a narrative. It's a historical narrative. It's not a scientific treatise. It's a historical narrative. It's, it's, as if, it's as if granddad and grandson are walking on the road, and grandson says, hey, granddad, tell me again about how God made people. And granddad goes and relays this story. He summarizes Genesis 2 verse 4, summary. Well, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. Now, in the day does not contradict the six days of creation in Genesis 1. It's a summary. Granddad's telling a summary, if you will. And so he gives a context, verse 5. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And of course, the intended audience at this time knew about farming, they knew about rain. We're looking backwards from this point. Verse 6, but a, a mist back then, a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now, just a quick note on what we might call biblical markers. One of my big deals is, is teaching people, myself, how to read their Bibles accurately. It all makes sense if you know how to read it. A lot of history takes place during the period of Genesis. A lot of years. But the book's real small. And so God, what God gives you is a glimpse of really important stuff, so we want to pay attention. Much is left out. What is included has purpose. And the mention of no rain in verse 5 is probably a marker pointing to an extreme event in which God will send rain in Genesis chapter 7 at the inauguration of Noah's flood. And still don't fall on your sword about when rain started and did it really not rain during this period and stuff. Don't fall on your sword, but do note that God is the source of rain. Now we get up close and personal, verse 7. Then, then, the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. I think about the few times on the job when I've, I've given CPR and, and breathe. It's very personal to breathe the breath of life into somebody else. It's like very personal. I mean, I can still taste the... Uh, this is not in the notes. Uh, I, can, uh, <laughs> I, had a, I, I had a little girl drown, and uh, I can still taste 
right? I mean, they tell me it's a psychological phenomenon. I can still taste that CPR event. It's uh, different triggers give that to me, and it's a very personal thing. And here it says, God went and breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. That's different than making clay and saying, "Be alive." It's very personal. And that's what God is communicating to you. He's a personal, intimate God. This is what he wants with you. There's something deeply personal, even poetic about this. He breathed into your nostrils. God created us personally, intentionally, for a relationship with him. That's what this teaches us. Angels don't seem to hold a place of what God desired in relationship. The, the triune nature of God that Gunnar spoke about seems to exemplify relationship. It's part of being formed in the image of God. God desires a relationship with men, with people, with, with you. He prepared you for that relationship, and he prepared an environment to take care of you within that relationship. It's the way God is. Now, let me ask you, was your early religious training based on Intimacy or on rules to follow? (laughs) Lack of intimacy typifies the frustration found in the pursuit of religious experience. How many times have you met a coworker that said, yeah, I tried religion, I tried that, it didn't satisfy, I tried that. Many of you can attest to a religious upbringing that just didn't satisfy. You get this. What is difficult mom and dad, what is difficult is how to instill this intimate God connection in your children. How do you give it to them? How do you do that? Something greater, something, something more authentic than mere religious practice or just going to church. Uh, every godly parent wrestles with this. In fact, take this home with you. Write this one down. You have paper here. Write this one down. Ask yourself, how can I cultivate intimacy with God? Write it down. Chew on it. How can I cultivate intimacy with God? If you take nothing else away, take that question away and think about it, because God loves that question. How do I cultivate intimacy with God? Okay, we see God the source, we see God the creator, and now we're going to see God the provider. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there as well. So God made this uh, perfect environment for man, a, a garden. Valley Center people can appreciate growing things. Now, Genesis is primarily a book of what? It's a historical narrative, what happened. And it's not really a book of why. Time does not allow us to explore the tree of knowledge or the tree of life. We're not going to dig into those. Nor can we discuss why it was that God put these trees among an otherwise perfect environment. I mean, why would he even do that? That's a God thing. Let's not go there. But still, I I do want to point out that the tree of life is a biblical marker. You see it just about a handful of times, about five times in the Bible, and uh, in the great story of God. And and it, uh, it is showcased at the end of the story in Revelation 22. It's a really big deal. 
when we get to that place with no more sin, the tree of life will be there. And we can dig into that later. Okay, let's move on. It says here, read quickly. Verse 10 through 14. In fact, I'm going to read it real quick. There was a bunch of rivers flowing, and you know what they were. Okay, verse 14. Tigris and Euphrates. We have reference to the Tigris and Euphrates River. Are they the same Tigris and Euphrates that were there then? I don't know. People rename things. Geography, geology changes. But he gives you a bunch of things about river. Okay, enough geology. Let's get back to uh, God and man. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. God put Adam into the garden. It wasn't just to eat the fruit. It was to cultivate it and keep it. I think there's a point here. If, if there is work in perfection, if there is work in perfection, we may conclude that there will be work in eternity. When you get to your heavenly state, God will have things for you to do. You won't just have to sit around. Some of you say, that's great. Others are like, oh, no. <laughs> it will suit you perfect, though. But don't fall, don't fall on a sword. It's just a hint. I like to point those things out. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. The point here, when God gives us instruction on how we should operate within his creation, Those instructions are for our good. Those instructions are for our good. We operate best when we obey God's instructions. That applies today. We operate best when we obey God's instructions. As we develop our understanding of the nature of God, we see that a, a good God prepares an adequate place for us. He, he gives us a purpose, something to do, and he gives us instructions for success. He's the same today. He does the same things for us. But wait, there's more. There's more. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a suitable helper for him. But he wasn't alone. He had God there. He had animals there. He had all that stuff there. He might have had a workshop with a lathe and a mill and said, well, never mind. But he said it's not good. God said it's not good for me alone. I'll make him a helper. Newsflash, you are a social being, like it or not. You are a social being. I have to emphasize this more in your Valley Center communities. I work for the county of San Diego, so I work all over the place. And I'll tell you, downtown Encinitas, I have a certain kind of people. Santee, a certain kind of people. But as we get out to Lakeside, Valley Center, Hamule, places like that, I get a lot of independent people. A lot of independent, want to run their own lives kind of people. A whole different crowd of people. You work with them differently. People that maybe don't want to be around other people. But God has created you as a social being. Not fun always. Not your bent maybe. But that's what we're created. We need each other. Gunner's been harping on this for the last year. We need to be in church. We need each other. And if, we have a, if any of us have a problem with that, we need to kind of look at that problem and say, why do I have that? We need each other. We cannot operate correctly without each other. It's part of being made in the image of God. 
Still, God knows man, and God knows that, apparently, he has to take Adam on a journey so that Adam realizes he needs a suitable helper. He takes Adam on a detour, if you will. I mean, good women know that sometimes men need a little bit of help in order to know what they need. Yeah. (laughs) Verse 19. So out of the ground, the Lord God had formed or formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. He takes Adam on kind of a parallel mission. Hey, Adam, let's go on an animal naming adventure, okay? Let's go and name things. What he's really going to see is that none of these things measure up for him. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky names and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, this was not God checking to see going through roll call to see if there were any suitable helpers for Adam. Rather, this is Adam's journey of discovery, where Adam is going to learn by experience that there's no suitable helper. Like the light bulb comes on, Adam sees us and must realize there's nothing there. Excuse me. So a training point here for you trainers of people. Before God gives Adam a suitable helper, he allows Adam to learn by experience that he needs a suitable helper. Before God provides this for Adam, he lets Adam know by experience his own need for this thing. I mean, consider this in God's training of you. When has God God allowed you to experience your need before satisfying that need? Think about that. When has God allowed you, and sometimes it was a long journey, to experience your need before then satisfying that need? That's my story as a Christian. I, it, it took me a long time to realize, oh, I need the Lord. But I had to learn it through the rear because I wouldn't learn it through the ear. It's not the way I'm wired. Chew on that one. And for your children as well, when you're, when you're making curriculum for your children and their growth, some gifts are so precious that an environment must be created so that the receiver can fully value the gift. And God's in charge of that. Note, too, that God was the first to know that Adam had a need. God knew it before Adam knew it. And some of you know the the longing of wanting that suitable helper in your life. God knew your need before you did. And you can trust him to be working out the details behind the scene to give you that thing that he has led you to know that you want. You can trust him. But don't miss the transition in the development of the story of intimacy. I mean, up till now, man has been called man. But here in verse 20, for the first time, we see God assign a name to man, Adam. It just pops out. And as the saying goes, once you name it, you got to keep it, right? So bring on the suitable helper, verse 21. So, now that Adam appreciates his need for a suitable helper, that's what so means. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and he slept. 
Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. Now get this. God did not form man's helper out of dust like he did everything else, which would have been fine, totally consistent with his creative order. Would have been fine. Take some clay, spit on it, you have a woman. But he didn't do that. Rather, God formed woman from the very flesh of man. And Adam did not miss the distinction. Look what he says, verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. That's not really how it reads. That misses the point. uh, Those who know such things tell us that in the Hebrew language, this expression of exclamation is in strong emotional terms, intimate terms. And I think Young's literal translation actually kind of nailed it when it said, the man saith, this is the proper step. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is the one. That was his response. Beyond love at first sight. He said, wow, this is not a chicken or a cow or an ape. No, this is someone like me. This is what I've been longing for. Adam thinks that woman is someone worth leaving home for. In fact, that's what he says. Look at verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we know this is not a fable because it doesn't end, and they lived happily ever after. Next week, Gunner gets to pick up with the entry of sin into the human race. He gets the good stuff. And if you're unfamiliar, suffice to say that Adam and Eve did not follow God's instructions. But still, there are some takeaways from this chapter, which, if applied, would benefit us individually, as a church, and in our intimate relationships, married or unmarried. So here's some takeaways or throwaways. You do what you want with them. First, God created people in his own image. God created people in his own image. We are not animals, we're people. As people, we still retain God-ordained responsibilities to manage his creation. It's our job. And when we devalue people as simply part of creation, we're only as valuable as trees, no more valuable than cows, we bring on a slew of problems. When we deny the fact that God determined our gender, we bring on a slew of problems. Same goes for when we fail to responsibly manage his creation we bring on a slew of problems. Now, you're smart people. I trust you can apply that as it applies to you. I leave it to you. But the main thing is that God created people in his own image. We're not like the rest of creation. Don't let them lie to you. We're not just a species of animal. Next, I only have about five. Next, we were specifically created for intimacy with God. We were created for intimacy with God. That is why you're created. If that's not been your experience, that's something to work on. And I don't give you a how-to today, but that's what's important. Your and my chief pursuit in life should be to know God intimately. 
This cannot be overstated, and perhaps at the core of all of our troubles is this failure to pursue intimacy with God. Created for intimacy with God. Next, take it or leave it, we are social beings. Being created, beings created for intimacy. Now part of your journey in forming intimacy with God will involve forming relationships with others. There are no lone ranger Christians. That's not God's design. There are no successful Christians who just want to go it alone. You need to go to ladies and lattes and things like that. It's the way God's designed it. We are social beings. Next. Intimacy with God should precede our search for a suitable helper. Intimacy with God should go before our search for intimacy with a spouse. It has been said that there is this God-shaped void in the heart of all people. God's put it there. And all too often we seek intimacy with others as a substitute for intimacy with God. And when we do this, we soon find out that the helper will likely become unsuitable, to put it mildly. God gave us marriage as a gift for us, not a replacement for him. I like what the one guy said, I can go a long time without being married to the right woman, but I don't want to go a day married to the wrong woman. Matthew 6.33 supports as Jesus says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He knows what you need. Seek intimacy with God first. Okay, just a few more. My timer's not going, so my wife's going to go to 11 or 12 or something. Next, we get that marriage is a gift from God. It's in the passage. Marriage is a gift from God. Women should not be treated like they're made of dirt. They are not. Next to the pursuit of intimacy with God, a married person should focus mostly on cultivating the marriage relationship. This takes work. This takes commitment, but it's important. In fact, it's imperative. Some of you are victims of situations where this didn't occur. When Jesus was asked about the permissibility of divorce, he referred back to this passage in Genesis saying, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? And Jesus continued, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And men and women are not the same. God charges men with special responsibilities. Uh, 1 Peter 3 says it this way, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. That means, men, become a student of your wife. You can't understand something you have not studied. Live with your wife in an understanding way as someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Or said another way, men, we are called to study our wives just like you did when you were trying to trick her into marrying you. You studied her, right? You learned how she ticked. 
at the core of your studies is the question, how can I better honor her? How can I better honor her? A failure to do so can result in God giving you a deaf ear. It says your prayers will be hindered. That's strong language. Remember, you have married a king's daughter. She should be treated accordingly. And if you're experiencing marriage challenges, if you are normal, do reach out to your church family for help. This is not a, you don't measure up. This is, we need each other to buck up. This is hard work. These are hard truths. When you marry that person, she and you bring in a whole slew of baggage, a lot of stuff to work through, and you're in the right environment for that. Now, I see this, uh, you know, 27 years I, I knocked on doors, um, <clears throat> as in my, I get my black and white, go to the domestic call, and I'd see the argument, and I found out that men and women basically argued over five issues, um, money, uh, other stuff, religion, in-laws, and kids. Those are the five issues. Forget drugs and alcohol. The uh, in-laws, boy, the leave and cleave principle. The leave and cleave principle. For this cause, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. Boy, that still applies, folks. Did it strike you that the person who said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, that person didn't actually have a father and mother to leave? Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother. Marriage predates Christianity. God's design for marriage is a global design for all people. This does not mean that all people need to get married, but rather that God ordained patterns for marriage that apply to all people and are to be obeyed by all people. And that's for all people. Furthermore, a failure of a married couple to switch their primary allegiance from their parents to another is a formula for disaster. And that said, you young warriors that that hope to someday claim the allegiance of some young, young damsel out there, you need to set yourself up financially so you can support her and not have to have her parents stick in their nose in too much. If you take her, you have to provide for her. She belongs to you. It's God's design. And we parents-in-laws, is that proper plural? I don't know. We need to commit ourselves to allowing the new couple to become a family unit. When my youngest uh, got married, I was, I was really glad that he and she moved all the way back to Florida away from both sets of in-laws. It was good for them for the first year to have time to themselves. I'm glad for that. They can come back a little more now. It'd be okay, but that's fine. <laughs> and this goes for both dads and moms. Learn to bite our tongue. Remember, if you do this, grandchildren will cover a multitude of sins. It'll be to your benefit. Okay. On verse 25, my last thing. On verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay. By design, marriage needs to take place before the two becoming one flesh takes place. Marriage needs to take place before the intimacy with one another. That's God's pattern. That's God's instruction, and that's for your protection, and that will keep you out of trouble. Okay, a lot of information. And don't believe for a second that I have hit 100% in all of those issues. These are issues that I've been beaten up by. A lot of information. The reality is that some of us 
most of us, probably all of us, have fallen short of God's ideal for intimacy as presented in Genesis 2. All of us have experienced what happens when we operate outside of God's instructions. And let's remember that by the time Genesis 2 was written down, about the time of Moses, when it was written down, it was addressed to a people who had already fallen short of God's perfect design for intimacy. God knows what it's about. It's not Pollyanna stuff. God accepts us just as we are. He welcomes us in, even with the baggage of years of bad choices and the consequences those years bring. You're welcome. Amen. Our reality is that many today are confused about gender identity. God is the answer. Many have struggled through the pain of multiple marriages. God is the answer. Many of our attempts at genuine intimacy have been met with frustration and betrayal. And you're like, I've tried people, I'll stick with cats, thank you. Genesis 2 teaches us that God does have the answer to this. Marriage, good marriage, is the closest earthly illustration to the intimacy which God desires to have with you and me. No wonder, no wonder in the very next chapter, you'll see Satan attack marriage at its core. He wants to destroy that from the early parts. And perhaps you've experienced Satan's attack on your marriage. This should come as no surprise. Regardless of where you've stumbled in this area of intimacy, it's always better from this moment forward, it's always better to follow God's pattern. A pattern for your good and for his glory. Now I know that I've scratched the surface of many deep issues this morning, and perhaps we've even opened a few wounds, and that's not pleasant. But you know, it's the truth. Every Sunday morning we have uh, prayer partners uh, who come up front here uh, just after the um, uh, closing song. We have pair uh, partners who come up front. And, and if we've hit a nerve this morning, if, if God is tugging at your heart over an issue that you need help to deal with or clean up or move forward, do, do come forward and speak to these folks and pray. Reach out to your church. We're here for you. We're not against you. We get it. We get it. Do reach out. We're here for you. Because God indeed has the answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and, and we know that the Genesis story has been told as a story many times over, and people are being taught just to uh, diminish it or get rid of it or not believe it. But this is truth, and it's applicable truth, and it's real truth, and many of us have uh, been victims. We've suffered from the consequences of not following these truths or being married to someone who didn't follow these truths. Lord, also you know there's people out here in this audience that are they're just dying for that special helpmate, Lord. We trust that you love us more than we know, that you're not holding back some reward for when we finally get it right. That's not the way you operate. But Lord, help each of us here, above all things, to establish, to connect in intimacy with the Creator who loves us and who has made us. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. We love you. Amen.